following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. As Eric said, we are going to um, walk through a, a life of a man today. Um, this guy's name is Bobby Bagley, um, and some of you probably have not ever heard of him. He was a POW in Vietnam. And um, I remember walking through probably one of those library book sales, you know, where the library gets rid of things and they're kind of transitioning. And I picked this book up. I was a little boy. And on the front of it, there's this fighter plane going down. So, I mean, as a little boy, I'm like, oh, cool. The story of, you know, fighting and, you know, war and, you know, men of valor. I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I want. So I picked it up and little did I know that I was going to be reading a story of just a great man of God. It's sat on my shelf now for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, and picked it up a couple months ago, just because I didn't remember the whole story, and I reread it, and then Eric asked if I wanted to teach, and I was like, you know what, I just re- remembered and kind of refreshed my mind on the story, I want to, yeah, I'd love to, let me let me share this, and so um, I, I just want to, we're going to walk through um, a couple things, um, but before we do, I really felt like it was important for us to kind of start in a good place, and so I want to, I want to give you a definition of what a POW is, you probably understand and know what it is. But I want to share something with you, and then I want to ask us a question. Um, um, Really, if you look up just the plain and simple definition, it is a prisoner of war, one who is captured by the enemy at a time of war, especially a member of the armed forces. And I want us to think about as men that, you know, we are in a time of war. Y'all, I mean, I I hope you realize that. And if you don't have a warlike mentality, then um, I hope you leave with one today. But truly, in the world that we live, we are in a place where there is a spiritual war going on. There are physical wars happening around the world, but we truly each and every day step into a battle between good and evil, a battle between um, the Lord and, and the enemy. And so we are called and equipped and, and really urged to stand firm and stand into that battle. And so I, I want us to have that mentality first, but then I also want us to think about the, the reality of this. Um, look at this question. It's at the top of your paper. And I want to start here, and I want to just take a second. I want you to just to think about this. What can I find myself a POW of in, in my own life? What can I find myself a prisoner of war of? And that's a convicting question because there's a lot of things that we truly can be susceptible to and we can fall to. But I want to just take a second, and I want you to, um, there's a couple of verses there. You don't, I mean, you can look them up. I'll read them here in a second. But I just want to take one just one moment of silence for a second. And I want us just to stop and I want us to reflect on our own lives and think about this. What are the things that the enemy captures me in? What are the things that the enemy takes and he says, I'm going to pull you in and I'm going to make you a prisoner of this war that's going on in life? And what are those things that you fall into each and every day? What are the things that you fall into weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever it looks like? And I just want us to start there because I think if we will start with a humble heart before the Lord and say, God, this is where I find myself a prisoner. Will you continue to rescue me and teach me how to walk strong through this, out of this, beyond this? And I think if we start there, then we'll have a better understanding of how to walk forward as men of war, as men of valor, as men that are with a warlike mentality as we walk through life. So just take a second on your own and just ask yourself that question. Just look in your heart. And, and this should be our cry. I'm going to read this, but I want you just to, to stop and to reflect on your own heart. And I want, to just, I want you to hear what our cry should look like. It should look like this, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 10 of Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You keep going on, and it says, For you, O God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise those you love. So stop for a second and make that your cry this morning for just a second. Picture yourself as a prisoner and, and truly cry out and say, God, what is it that is that holds me down and, and what is it that hinders me from being a man with a warlike mentality with my family, with my job? There's so many things, there's so many things we could list. You know, just, just fear, doubt, shame, and guilt, those things that the enemy likes to use against us. Specific things of our financial responsibility or our family responsibility. Just walk through that in your mind for a second. And give that to the Lord and start right there and say, God, create in me a clean heart. You show me what it is. And then here's what I want to do too is I want you to hear what God says. In the midst of this, this is how he responds. And this is what he says to the prisoner. Psalm 69, verse 33. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. God, I just pray that you would put within us a clean heart this morning. Would we stop for just a moment and cry out to you, knowing that you hear our cry? God, we don't want to be prisoners. We want to be men that are walking forward in strength and in honor and in purity. Would you remind us of that this morning? You show us in our hearts what it is that you have in store for us. And God, would you continue to teach us what it means to walk out of the, walk out of the prison and God into life. God, we love you. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't like walking through those things too quickly. So if there's something stirring in your heart, jot it down, write it down, put it, put it down and realize, God, you've put this on my heart for a reason. And I think that's the place that we as men sometimes true, too quickly walk past is realizing that there's a very easy, susceptible way for us to become a prisoner of the things that are everyday life. When what God has truly called us to is to walk through life with a warlike mentality, but in freedom and in honor and as one who is giving that strength and that freedom, that love away to other people. Um, And so we're going to be walking through this life for a little bit. I want to show you really what it says about Bobby Bagley. This is the, um, his silver star citation, one of two that he received. Some of you can't see it. I'm just going to read it out loud. It says, Major Bobby, Bobby R. Bagley distinguished himself by gallantry in connection with military operations against an opposing armed force near Sun Lada, North Vietnam on 16th of September, 1967. On that date, Major Bagley was assigned as a wingman in a flight of two unarmed and unescorted RF-101 aircraft on a post-strike photographic reconnaissance mission against the Northwest Railroad. 
he displayed unprecedented bravery when, on egress, he was hit by air-to-air missiles, but continued giving his leader warning information at a time when his own aircraft was completely disabled and on fire. By his gallantry and devotion to duty, Major Bagley has reflected great credit upon himself and the United States Air Force. So Major Bagley was going out, and he was going to do some reconnaissance mission after something had happened, after they had taken care of a certain spot in, in Vietnam. So he was going out to go take some photographs. And on his way back, um, it, it says at the very beginning, I'll read it here in a second, on his way back, he could see the, the Laotian border. He could see Laos. He's like, if I can just get over the border, rescue will be easy. It'll be a much easier. Rescue will be easier. Me standing a chance of being alive will be easier. Um, but it says that he went down just before that, and he landed. And I'll, I'll read it in just a second. But he landed and immediately was taken into he was taken um, prisoner. And so he landed in this place. Um, and I just want us to to see what this looks like because um, what I realized as I reread the story and as I looked through some of these things, this was a man of God. This was a man that loved God's word, that he walked through life with, a, with an understanding of who God was and what God had for him. And I just want us to take a second and look at what does it mean, what does a man of God look like in a time of war? What does a man of God look like in a time of war? And so let me read kind of how this starts right here. It says, the day began with no hints of the horrors to come. The gray light of dawn crept slowly across the American aircraft lined up on the runway of Thailand's Yudon Air Force Base. In the American officer's quarters, 34-year-old Air Force Major Bobby Bagley sat on the edge of his bunk and rubbed his eyes. Yawning, he stretched his six-foot frame, looked enviously at his sleeping roommate, then stumbled sleepily to the shower. At 10 o'clock, Bagley was scheduled to make a photo reconnaissance flight over North Vietnam. The shower awakened him, and he hurried to get ready. Shaving carefully around his blonde mustache, he thought about the letter he had written his wife, Sandy, the night before. Somehow she had heard he was flying combat missions, and in his letter he admitted flying some, but did not tell her how often. He hoped he could keep her from worrying, but he, but he knew she would probably see through his pretense. After almost 13 years of marriage, she knew him quite well. Goes on, he wiped the lather from his face and pulled on his flight suit and zipped it up. Slipped on two pairs of socks and laced up his jungle boots. From his locker, he removed a wristwatch, his identification cards, and two packs of cigarettes. He put on the watch and tucked the cards and cigarettes into his pockets, Reaching back into the locker, counted out $67 from a roll of bills and slipped the money into his chest pocket. After his flight, he planned to go to the PX and buy a camera for his 11-year-old daughter, Vicky. He hoped she'd have less time to worry playing around with it. Daddy, be careful, she'd written in her last letter. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Luckily, Bagley told himself, he was due to go home in a few months. Putting on a green baseball cap, he walked to the officer's mess for a large breakfast of eggs, bacon, and toast, his favorite meal. It goes on, and it says he was issued a parachute, a 38 revolver, and a survival kit containing an inflatable life jacket, medicine, drinking water, a knife, two radio transmitters, and a can of black pepper. The pepper was included to discourage dogs from tracking a downed flyer. So it goes on and kind of talks through these things, but one of the first things that I see uh, what a man of God looks like in a time of war is he's prepared. A man of God in a time of war is prepared. This man got up. He knew what his mission was. He knew what he was walking into. He knew what his family thought. He knew all the expectations, but he was prepared. He knew how he had to dress. He knew what he had to take. He knew if he went down, he knew what to do in the, in the sense of there's an emergency happening. If something were to go awry from the plans that he had started. And so as men, I think it's important for us to talk about are we prepared? When, what we just did a second ago, that's us preparing ourselves for the day. Is opening our hearts before the Lord and saying, God, show me, cleanse me, renew me, teach me. 
and remind me how to cry out to you. That's us preparing for each and every day. Should be how we prepare our families for each and every day is, families, put your hearts and your minds and your life before the Lord. And so he was prepared. He's a man that's prepared. Take it a step further for just a second. Is your family prepared for the moment that you go to work today and you don't come home? Not necessarily financial stable or those kind of things, debts being covered, wages being paid, not, not those kind of things, but does your family know that you love them? Does your family know that you love them? Do, do you know what your family's love looks like for you? Do you know that? Are you prepared in such a way that your family knows that if something were to happen, they know how you feel, or is there something that's unkept in there that needs to be changed, that needs to be fixed, that needs to be forgiven? I would just challenge you that. That's a hard word, but I want you to know, are you prepared for whatever comes our way, whatever happens? We're not, we're not granted, we're not promised tomorrow, and so I want us to be prepared in the way that we leave a legacy that shows one of love and of faith and of honor. Are you prepared for life? Are you prepared for the days that come and the things that are gonna happen? Are you prepared for the temptations the enemy's gonna bring? And then also look back, are you prepared for death? Again, not that everything's taken care of, but are you prepared for the moment that you stand before God? Because I would challenge you, that's where every man should start as we prepare our hearts and say, God, the moment that my life is done and I stand before you, I'm prepared for that moment. Now, I'm not saying we can be completely prepared because when we stand in the glory of God, it's gonna put us on our knees. But I will tell you that there's a moment that we can be prepared in the sense of he will look at us and say, I don't see you, I see my son and I see the sacrifice he gave. That's the only preparation we need. And so I would challenge you with that. Like, are we prepared? Bobby was, and so it goes on, and, and, it, and it goes on. He says he traded his baseball cap for a pilot's helmet, joined him on the Air Force van for the ride to the flight line. Half an hour later, they descended to a lower altitude to avoid radar detection and entered enemy airspace. So he's prepared. He knew what was going on. But at the same time, here's, not only was he prepared, but he is aware of the enemy and its threats. He's aware of what he's flying into. He's aware of what's happening. He's aware of what's going on. And he knows I am heading into enemy territory. When you walk out of your home, when you walk out of your prayer closet, when you walk out of your safety places, the bubbles that you maybe reside in, when you walk out of those, when you walk out of this church, whatever you consider a place of safety, when you walk out, are you prepared for what the enemy has in store? Because we're not aware that there's an enemy around us as 1 Peter 5 says, he's a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. If we don't realize that the enemy is aware of us and ready for us and cunning and, and designing things for us, are we going to be ready when he does attack, when he brings those things up? And, and I would just challenge you, this is what he said, is that he was like, we, we were in, in an airspace. And so it says that they went over, they took some pictures. They, moments later, they crossed North Vietnam's Black River, flying at 21,000 feet. So far, the mission had been perfect. Isn't that how we go with life? Man, so far, man, life's going great. It's good. The sun beamed cheerfully on the countryside below, and the land looked postcard peaceful. It was hard to believe a war existed down there. <laughs> we feel the same way sometimes in our own homes, don't we? We create this facade of, man, everything's great here, but, but we don't realize the war out there. Or we feel that way at work. We'll go to work, and that's the place of, oh, man, things are great here, but we don't like to admit the war that's going on at home. You know, think, 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 just get this picture in your mind. Suddenly, something slammed into the rear of his aircraft. Debris bounced off his helmet. The instrument panel's warning lights flashed on. The cockpit instantly filled with smoke. He tried to shut his engines down and left the throttle, but the throttle was, but the throttle, throttle was frozen. Excuse me. Cut off the master switch and closed the right throttle, shutting down the fuel and putting out the fire. 
you say, I'll leave. This is two, he radioed. I'm hit and I'm burning. Get out, get out, get out, they shouted. You're going to blow up. And it goes through the whole interaction between him and this MIG. And it says that the MIG actually pulls up beside him and he's able to look. They look eye to eye. You know, the enemy comes up and looks at him before he puts him down. And, and once he knows that this man is going down, the enemy pulls up and they look eye to eye. And it's that moment that Bagley's like, this is much worse than I ever could have imagined. But at the same time, he was very willing. He was prepared. He was aware of the enemy. And he was ready to look the enemy in the eye. And he knew what was coming. He knew. He was prepared. He was ready. He looked him in the eye and he said, here it comes. And it says that he raised his armrests on his seat. He activated the exploding bolts, causing the canopy to pop off and sail away in the wind. Under the armrests were ejection triggers. Carefully placed his feet on the rudder pedals, pressed his legs against the seat cushion, and pulled his arms close to his body. Sucking in his chin, he pressed back against the seat, took a deep breath, pressed the triggers, and with an explosive whoosh, he was catapulted from the aircraft and separated from the seat. He tumbled earthwards, earthward, spreading his arms and his legs. At 14,000 feet, his parachute jerked automatically and ballooned above him. As if in slow motion, he began to drift downward. Far away to his right, he saw the voodoo spinning toward the ground, trailed by a long black column of smoke. The airplane silently disappeared in this jungle and expelled a final cloud of smoke. So he went down in enemy territory, but he knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was in enemy territory. He knew what was happening. And it goes on, and it says that he was immediately captured. There was, no, any, there, there was not any way that he could have gotten away. He basically landed, you know, 10 feet outside of a village. They captured him. They took him into this village of all these men and women. They could have cared less that he was, a, you know, who he was or where he's from. But they knew if they could get him to the Vietnamese, then they would guard their, their city. Their city would have a whole new sense of respect in their eyes because they had brought them an American prisoner. So it says they stripped him of his clothes. They took his badges. People started wearing his medals. Um, even one of the guys that was leading him to, to the base pulled Bagley's boots off and put them on because he needed boots for his own feet. And so it goes through, and then he immediately began to be beat and threatened with his life. They began to question him and ask him questions of, what's going on here and why is this happening? And it says that he was very shamed because he ended up breaking a little bit. He didn't give them any information. He basically made up this giant lie of what was going on. Oh, yeah, there's this great big attack planned. They have bombers here and men here and all this kind of stuff. And he laid out some things, and, he, and it says that the, the interrogator was just writing it all down. And he was like, I felt shame in some ways because I'd broken so easily. But at the same time, I knew I was protecting what was back at home. He was like, I knew that I was taking care of my business as a, as a serviceman. I was giving what I could to distract them away from what was truly happening. Um, and so really there was this sense of hopelessness. There's a, there a lot of, of things going on. But, but I will tell you at the same time, a man of God in a time of war, um, he has hope. Um, there's, a, there's a moment in here where he is um, sitting down and he's just left a, a terrible interrogation. Um, it says he was still sore and his pain increased his dejection. Although he regained more feeling in his hands and his legs, his back still ached and his hips and shoulders were painfully stiff. His broken jaw was a constant nagging source of pain. He received no treatment. In desperation, this sounds terrible, Bagley decided to set the break himself. Wedging his body into a corner, he clasped his hands together, hooked them under his broken jaw, and shoved upward. He almost fainted. The pain was so great, but he forced himself to repeat the process regularly for several days, and eventually the pain in his jaw began to lessen. It's terrible. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, then it finally started to lessen. Then suddenly he noticed one of the rats living in his cell had only one leg. 
She moved around the cell so quickly it was hard to be sure at first. But when she passed for a moment, Bagley was positive. The rat's right leg was gone. Forgetting about himself, he watched the rat scuttle around the cell, sniffing the air for danger. She would slide under the door and return later with food for her squealing brood of babies. All day she repeated her routine and Bagley's interest began to, to increase. In the course of her travels, he saw that the rat often bumped into walls and stumbled over her offspring. Um, also, it says that unable to sleep one night, he worked to open a clogged nail hole in the sail's boarded over window, hoping to make an opening through which he could see outside. Using a bamboo splinter he found in the shower, Bagley probed the tiny hole for hours till the splinter poked through. He looked outside and he could see nothing but dark. He fell asleep and it says the next morning the sun shone in through that little hole and it put a light beam on his wall. And he's like, there's light coming in my cell. There's, there's, there is hope. There's still life out there. And it says he was obsessed with the self-pity. But moments later, a thin shaft of sunshine beamed through the peephole and shot across the dismal cell, splashing a quarter-sized spot of light on the bottom cell of the door. When Bagley saw the light, he suddenly felt his dark, depressing world of suffering and gloom that had been dramatically touched by a power too great for prisoners to suppress. The sunshine was a gift from God. He joyfully realized, and it proved that nothing, not even prison, could separate from his love. The rat, he realized, also was a sign, an example he was meant to follow. Severely handicapped, the rat still worked tirelessly to care for her young. Even in prison, Bagley was aware God did not want him to give up. At that moment, locked in a dirty Hanoi prison cell, Major Bobby Bagley gave his future completely to God, knowing now he would never again be alone. Like a bright ray of sunshine, the Lord had cut through the dark oppression of prison to share his warm, comforting love. A man in a time of war, a man of God, he's hopeful because he has seen one. He looks back and he can see, God, you've been faithful here. You've been faithful here. You've been faithful here. And also, if he cries out like he does in Psalm 51, we hear in Psalm 69 that God says, I hear that cry. That is how we can be hopeful is because we say, God, I'm hopeful because of what you've done in the past. And I'm hopeful because your word says that in the future there'll be a new heaven and new earth, that there is freedom. So I'm asking right now, would you give me a glimpse of that hope in my current life? And I would just challenge you, how do you do that? How do you seek out, how do you find hope in the everyday? I mean, it goes on, and uh, I would say that a man of God in a time of war is faithful. I mean, he's faithful to his family. He's faithful to the responsibilities that have been given to him. Um, there's a whole chapter in here called Memories. So for the first time since his capture, Bagley knew hope. This was right after he saw the light and the rat. And he allowed himself to think of home. And it just goes through this whole unpacking of him re remembering, like, his wife and his daughter and his dad and his home and his bed and his church. And he remembers all these things. And it's just incredible that he had blocked some of those things out, but he begins to remember them. And it shows just the faithfulness that he has to his family because he is one. Who's, he's saying, I, I remember them. And I'm going to be faithful to them because of what they mean to me. I'm going to stand firm in what they've done for me. I'm going to stand firm in who they are. And there's another moment, too, that later he's approaching. He's given a package. But before he's given the package, his interrogator says, do you know where your wife lives? And one of the things they tell them, especially if they were captured prisoner of war, was do not give any personal details away. You can give your name and maybe your, your, your numbers off your ID tags, but don't give personal information away because then they'll be able to hold some of that over your heads. And so he was like, I don't know. She may be in Georgia, maybe in South Carolina, maybe in North Carolina. And he was like, how do you not know where your wife is? He's like, the United States is big. There's a freedom to move around. I, I don't know. She could have moved. I mean, they could have found a new job or a new home. And so he doesn't ever say that, and they get frustrated and they leave. But you see his tenacity that even in the midst of what may be bringing him pain, he's faithful to his family. 
He's faithful to what he's been given to be a steward over. He's been faithful to what God has given him to be the leader and the steward of. I challenge you that in a time of war, that's sometimes very easy. We will very easily become hidden within ourselves rather than making sure that we're taking care of the responsibilities that God's given us. So I would challenge you, look beyond yourself sometimes and say, what is it, where is it, how is it that my family, that my job, that my friends need me more than I need me? Because here's the thing too, is that if you're prepared in such a way that you know God as your heavenly father, then that what you're giving is not necessarily gonna be yourself. What you're giving away to other people, what you're being faithful in is in the strength and love of God that he's given you. So think about that for a second. It goes on and, and it says that um, there is some great moments for him. Um, he goes on and he, he comes in contact with several other men. And so a man of God in, in a time of war looks like one who finds community. He finds community, he needs community, he desires community. Think about this, you've been alone for several months, possibly even a year, I don't remember exactly how long it's been. But it says that he got connected with a man named Shofel, and so they, they, they were roommates, so they lived together. And then it says this, Bagley and Shofel introduced themselves to their two new cellmates, Lieutenant Commander Lee Hyatt and Major Dwight Sullivan. Hyatt, a Navy pilot from New Hampshire, had been shot down a month before Bagley. His arm had been broken when he ejected from his aircraft, and he was depressed, convinced the POWs would never be freed. Things aren't as bad as they look, Bagley told him. We'll get home one day if we all stick together. So Bagley had already found some hope, and so what did he immediately do with that hope? He didn't keep it himself. He said, you know what? I've been there, and I've done that, and it's not working, so let me tell you, if we'll stick together, we can make it through this. This right here is the same place that you can do that, that there's other men that you can look around and say, hey, I'm dealing with this. Has anybody else dealt with this? And I can challenge you, and I can affirm you, because I've, I've seen it happen here. I've seen it happen other places. When you're willing to admit, I need some help, if you're surrounded by men of God, they will step up and say, yes, I've experienced that. Yes, I've seen that. And they'll give to you the hope that God has given to them. I want you to realize that, that that is, that is huge. But it sometimes starts with us being willing to admit. This man probably admitted it out of desperation. We're not going to get out of here. Bagley goes, no, if we'll stick together. We can make it through this. Where's your community? Do you have a place where you are safe? Who are the men that you would call in the moment of desperation? The moment that you see the enemy coming and him pulling you away from your family and from your responsibilities and your job and your friends, who is it you call and say, hey, get me out. Walk me through this. Help me understand what it is that I need to do. What's your community look like? For, ba for, for Bagley, it was, it, his community constantly changed. They would constantly move the men around because they didn't want them getting comfortable in what was going on. They didn't want them comfortable with the men because they were aware if you get comfortable, you're gonna be able to organize. If you organize, you could start a riot. If you start a riot, it could be really painful on us. And so the men were constantly changed, the roommates were constantly changed, the cells were constantly changed, even the prisons that they were at were constantly moved around. So that wasn't a regular thing, but Bagley, it shows, and there's several other stories in here of community, but every time he got to a new place, that's what he would find. He would find the men that he could spend time with and, and do life with. Um, and just go back to, for a second, with the, with the faithful. A man of God in a time of war, he protects his family. Like I said, that there was something going on, and, and I think this is so incredible. Um, this is what happens is, I'll actually read you this part of the story. During a propaganda session one day, Spot asked Bagley where his wife lived. Determined not to divulge information about his family, he answered vaguely, I don't know exactly where she is. She could be in Georgia or North South Carolina, maybe even California. That's a big difference if you know your, your geography. 
is she in South Carolina? He's like, maybe, I don't know. He's like, you have a package. The word stunned Bagley. His heart pounded rapidly and his mouth became dry. And I want you to hear this because this was a powerful picture that stopped me in my tracks is that sometimes the enemy will give us something that he thinks is good for us or he tells us is good for us or he tells us is good for our families. And he says, if you will, then I will, I will take care of this. I will give you something. You think of the story of Jesus when he's brought out into the wilderness and he's set up on the highest place in Jerusalem. And, and the enemy says, I will give you what you want if you will bow to me. The same thing's happening here. This man's like, hey, you've got a package. You tell me where your wife lives, you got it. The enemy knows where our deepest needs are. Maybe it's not with your family, but it's with your job. There's a temptation. Hey, if you'll take this temptation, I'll give you that raise. I'll give you that promotion. Hey, you go this way, and you'll find exactly what you're needing emotionally, physically, spiritually. You, you'll find it, but just, just follow me. Just, just come. So it says that he saw that package, but he, he didn't know what to do. And so he kept his mouth shut, and even then, Spot put it on the table, and he gasped. It was a snapshot of Sandy, his wife. He stared at the photograph in tears and voluntarily rolled down his face. Looking uncomfortable, Spot pushed back his chair and left the room. I want you to hear that too. Like protecting our family sometimes looks like us realizing that our family is going to go through pain and hurt. And sometimes it, real, it's, sometimes it is us experiencing pain for our families to see. Now, his wife couldn't see this pain and she couldn't see his pain. But you know that the moment that that wife put that picture in that box and sent it to him, there was a, an aching in her heart. The moment that Bagley opened it up and saw his wife before him, there was, it says that the tears just involuntarily flowed. I want you to see that. Do you break over your family? Because I think if you, I believe, and I'm still learning how to do this, breaking over your family puts you in a completely better place to protect your family. If you're breaking yourself forward and, and crying out for his name. I have a three-year-old little girl, and I'm starting to see this little attitude come out in her, and I'm just like, God, I where is this coming from? I know part of it's three years old, part of it's that she's a woman, she's a girl, and I'm like, that's just what comes with that. But there's also just this other part of it that there's just this tenacity, and I'm like, God, would you help me shape that where that tenacity goes for you and not for the things of this world? Like, I, I just constantly pour myself out before the Lord. And for me, that's me giving her to him and saying, the best way I can protect her is by not putting my hands on her at all, is by saying, God, you... You do this. You show me how to shepherd and lead them, but I, I know you've got it. And for Bobby, it was the same thing. He's like, man, and, and it says he was able to take that package, which was great. It brought him encouragement. But they were so hard trying to break him where he would give up just anything of value. And in this moment, he protected his family. He protected who he was and what he'd said he would do to his family. He said, I'm going to stand firm. And I would challenge you with that, that that's what a man of God in wartime looks like. Um, another one, he's a man of prayer. This was incredible to me. There's, there's this whole section that it talks about in his life that he gets put in one cell. Like I said, they moved him around. He gets to one cell, and one of the things that he sees on, this, on, this, on the wall is it says, P, it says, new P-O-W, learn this. And it's just this whole giant picture of all these dots and spaces and lines and, and all this kind of stuff. And he asked one of the new roommates he was with, he's like, what is this? And he said, every time a new P-O-W comes in, what that is is that's basically a Morse code that we've made up. And so what it was is that, that the alphabet was separated into different lines. And so each line had a certain amount of dots, had a certain amount of taps. And then each letter after that had a certain amount of taps. So you'd go, okay, so I'm on line one. So you'd tap and you'd wait. And then A may have been two. And so like if you were, you know, whatever, if, you know, F, G, and H were on the next line, you'd go, okay, one, two, three. 
And, the one, and so, like, they were learning how to communicate with one another. And it says that they would tap on the walls, they'd, they'd get rocks, or they'd use their fists, or they'd knock on the doors. Or even if they're walking by people's cells, they would, they would learn how to tap really quickly. And it says that they would pass around um, prayers for one another. They'd pass around Bible verses. They would pass around encouragement. It says that they began to realize how many people were truly in the jail because what they were doing is they were connecting with one another. They were finding that community beyond just where they were because they were like, we want to know who all's here. And it said that they began to connect men and realize that there were men from, you know, same platoons and same outfits that all of a sudden they were like, we're in the same place, but we didn't know it. So being able to communicate. But it was incredible that this was a man that he prayed for others, he prayed for them. And there's another um, interesting story in here. There's one moment that there's a, um, a guy named Rabbit. Um, I, don't, I don't know where they come up with these names. Um, if you've, I mean, there's just, they would come up with these different names for some of these interrogators. But there's this man named Rabbit. And he's been interrogating. It says, during the period he was questioning Bagley, Rabbit also spied on him through the peephole of his cell door, watching for any infraction prison rules. One day, Bagley was saying grace before his afternoon meal when Rabbit peered through the peephole. What you do, ba? Rabbit called through the door. I was getting ready to eat, Bagley said. Why, why you kneel? I was saying grace. Don't thank your God, Rabbit rapped out in his words, shouting angrily. Thank Vietnamese people. They give you food. Your God did not give it to you. Despite Rabbit's harassment, Bagley continued to pray. The interrogation steadily became more violent, and Bagley's stomach cramped with dread each time he was ordered to the interrogation room. Fighting down his own fear, he prayed for strength to withstand Rabbit's abuse. After several weeks of intense harassment, Rabbit gave Bagley an ultimatum. I am giving up on you, he exclaimed. You have bad attitudes, and you cannot be changed. You have one last chance. I'm asking you one question. If you do not tell me the truth, I will be finished with you. Do you understand what this means? And Bagley swallowed and nodded. His, would his life depend on his answer? Moving closely to Bagley's face, Rabbit whispered dramatically, Are you a member of CIA? Unable to control himself, Bagley broke out into laughter, releasing all the tension of the past week. Startled, Rabbit backed up, turned and left the room, and Major Bagley never saw him again. And just never saw him again. Like, that, that man never came interrogated him again. But I will tell you that I think that strength came from what he had done first. He was a man on his knees, thanking God for every single thing that was given to him. He was on his knees, praying before the Lord, saying, God, I need you. I want you. Will you give me the strength to walk through this? I'm praying. I'm crying out. This is my voice to you. And it was just incredible to me to think that these men began praying for each other. And some of these men weren't even believers. But what he was doing is he was like, this is the thing that's brought me hope, is my relationship with the Lord and my communication with him. And I'm going to keep doing it because I want other men to find the hope that I have. One last thing that I want you to see I'm in this, and then we're going to go through a passage of Scripture and we're done. He loves God's Word. This was probably the most powerful part of this entire book. Um, there's something, and maybe you've heard of it before, but there's something called the POW Bible. And what it was, was it was POWs, when they found themselves in a place of being a prisoner, when they found themselves among other, other men, what they tried their best and hardest to do was remember things that brought them hope and security and one of those things that several of these men expressed was, maybe I didn't believe it, but I remember the word of God. Maybe I did believe it, and I remember the word of God. Whatever it was, the word of God seemed to always come up. I want you to hear Bagley's sincerity in this. I may read a little bit more, but I want you to hear what this says. More than almost anything, Bagley missed the Bible. He longed to touch it, to turn its pages, to see its passages for comfort and inspiration. 
Since childhood, the Bible had been a part of his life. As a youngster, he had frequently listened to his parents and his grandfather read from the Bible, then discuss its message. Will your kids be able to say that one day? That they've heard you out loud preach and teach and just read the word of God? At an early age, he had learned Bible stories, and in Sunday school, he had memorized scripture verses. In the years prior to his imprisonment, he had devoted little time to studying the Bible. Never had he imagined, this is a powerful statement to me, never had he imagined a day when the Bible would not be within easy reach, when reading it would be impossible and even discussing it would be forbidden. But for Bagley, such a day had come. So it says that they began to exchange scriptures through their their tapping on the walls. Um, They would get bricks and they would mound them down into dust and they would spit in it and they would make ink and they would would literally write Bibles. And these Bibles would be smuggled around and each time it got to somebody else's cell, whatever somebody remembered, they'd scratch it in there. So this wasn't a Bible that was, you know, necessarily in any certain order. This was the Bible that they were like, this is what I remember, and this is what I see, and this is what I've gained, and this is what has brought me hope. That, was, that would probably have been a, a powerful Bible to just walk through and see, this is the passage that has kept this man alive and given him hope through this. This is the passage that this man has clung to. And it says that they would, they would do it over and over and over. Although countless copies of the Bible were made in the North Vietnamese prison, Each copy was basically the same, a crudely made collection of scripture written on rough paper in a dozen handwritings. It was hidden in times of danger, smuggled from cell to cell, and shared by many. Each POW added a verse, a page, or a chapter. Strictly forbidden by the North Vietnamese, the Bible was the object of countless searches. It was destroyed when found, yet it was always available. When one copy was confiscated, another appeared. It's incredible. As soon as it was confiscated, another one would come out. They were ready for it. They wanted the word of God to be in their hands. And it says that there was also a moment that somebody walked in and bagged them and working on one for, for several months. And as soon as he came in, said, rather than being confiscated, he threw it into the toilet because he was like, I don't, he's like, I didn't want to get beaten. I don't want my cellmates to get beaten, but I also didn't want them to get their hands under the Bible. I didn't want to give them that, that pride. So I threw it in the toilet and I let it get wet and I ruined all that work. But listen to this. It says, um, with practice, he could get two letters with each dip of his bamboo pen. He'd get two letters with his spit and his brick dust. A verse might take an hour to write. And he's pouring over God's word. A page could take two days or two weeks, depending on the number of interruptions. A POW caught with a Bible might be beaten or even tortured, and narrow escapes were frequent. Among his favorite passages of scripture was the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art mine and thou art with me. Thou ride and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They keep going and there's several others says, but when I'm afraid, I'll put my confidence in you. Yes, I will trust the promises of God. And since I'm trusting in him, what can mere man do to me? These are the verses these men were clinging to. It goes on, and somebody wrote out the whole Sermon on the Mount. And they keep going, and, and it just, it was incredible. It says that Bagley was proud of one Bible. He had worked on it for months, painstakingly lettering each word with special care. Filled with dozens of pages and hundreds of scripture verses, the Bible was passed from prisoner to prisoner, and each man carefully added more scripture. One day, Bagley was quoting verses in the Bible when his cell was raided by North Vietnamese. He hastily showed the Bible under his bunk, but the guards found it. 
He was not beaten, but the Bible was confiscated. And the loss was a bitter disappointment to Bagley and the other prisoners who had contributed to the work. That night, however, Bagley read his writing materials, and the next day, another POW Bible was under construction. That's a, it was a, I mean, just, I was reading, I was like, this is amazing. This man loved God's word. This man loved God's word, and he was willing to even sacrifice basically his life so that he could get it written down and get it in the hands of other men. And I, wanna, and I just want to do one thing. I want you to hear one passage that kind of takes all these things together. And I just want to put this before you, and then I've got some questions on your table that you can spend some time talking to one another. But 1 Peter 5, I just want you to hear this. This is, here's what happens. Peter has given them that first step up there. It says he's prepared. 1 Peter 1 and 2 especially are basically the story of salvation. It's God saying, and it's Peter saying, this is what salvation looks like. Here's what it means. Here's how you should act because of it. He even says in there, that you are to be sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You're to be prepared. You're to be holy as I am holy. You can go back and read chapters one, two, and three. But then in chapter five, it starts this way. This is what he says. He says, okay, with all of salvation laid out before you and with the impact of it, here's what First Peter 5 says. And you're gonna see each one of these things in there. So I exhort the elders among you as, fellow, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, be prepared, know what you're walking into, see that you understand what it is that you're shepherding. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. There's our hope right there. There's our hope is that when we see the chief shepherd, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the call and that's the charge of a man, of a shepherd, of an elder, of one who is following God, of a man of war. That's what it looks like right there is that you have oversight. You lead in humility and not in shame and not under compulsion. You're not domineering, but you are eager to lead and give an example. You have hope because you know that no matter what happens here, in relationship with the Lord, I will gain a crown of glory. I just want you to think about that passage and, and take that aside and set it and read it at some other point and see what does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? We have an identity that's been placed on us that looks different than the world because of what God has done in our hearts. And I just want you to stop and realize that that mentality, that identity, that warlike mind that we should have should go out of here. And it should be something that we are doing. And so there's going to be moments that we feel like a prisoner. There's going to be moments where we truly don't understand exactly what it is that God is doing in our worlds. But the warlike mentality comes not only the strength to get through the war, but there also comes the idea of understanding freedoms on the other side of this war. I watched that last night, and I was just bawling, just thinking about, like, God, there's going to come a day where we get to do that. 
We don't step off a plane, but we step into heaven and we walk into freedom and we get to walk and we get to do that. But you know what? We've even been given that challenge here. Before a new earth and a new heaven, we've been called right here to walk in that same way, to walk in freedom and say, this is the scars, these are, this is the battle wounds that I have. Can you walk with me? Will you walk with me? Will you celebrate what God's doing and let me help you walk in the same way? Like that's what we've been challenged to do here and now. So I just want to give you that charge as men to have a warlike mentality, but also to realize that the freedom's already been given to you. Our next choice is what do we do with that freedom? Do we share it, do we live it out, or do we just keep it to ourselves? There's a couple questions that are there at the end, and you can talk about them around your tables. Which of the above attributes are you the best at, the worst at? What is one thing you could do to change today to improve your, menta- your wartime mentality? What's something you could do today to change your mentality of wartime? Maybe with those attributes in mind or with something else. And then the second thing, um, read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Some of you may already realize what that is. That's the armor of God. But I want you to just look at that with this, with this mentality of what keeps you from following his commands. Do you think it's important to do this and to do this daily? Why or why not? Like, why is it important for us to do that each and every day? So um, just want to give you some of those questions. Um, let me close in prayer, and then y'all can have a discussion, and then you're free to leave kind of as, we, um, as you finish at your tables as you need to. Eric, is there anything else that you need? Okay. Let me pray for us. Dearly Father, we love you. And God, I just continue to let this roll around in my own head of realizing that, God, there are things that I could do differently. There's places where, God, you have shown me that you desire, God, me to live in freedom and to walk in freedom in the things that have happened in my life and, God, to lead my family in freedom. God, I just pray that the words spoken this morning have not been mine. They haven't even been Bobby Bagley's, but, God, I pray that you have spoken through this story and through your word in such a way that we can see that we need to have a warlike mentality. We need to be talking and sharing about what our experiences are and not doing it in a way that we're talking, oh, this is what I'm saved from. We're talking about what we're saved to. We're saved to freedom and a hope that is bigger than anything we can ever imagine. God, I pray this morning that we would live as it says in 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. We'd act like men and we'd be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. God, we love you. Let's see all these things. We are a chosen generation. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.